This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 802. I hate the line passive income. I know that's a, a real estateism. When people say they want passive income, what they're really saying is I don't want to be tied to a business. I don't want somebody else to own my time. I don't want to have to work and stay away from my family. But there is no such thing as purely passive income. I think it is a complete and utter fallacy. The only way that you can get passive income is by doing upfront active work. What's going on, everyone? It's David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, the biggest, the best, the baddest real estate podcast in the planet. Here today with Rob Abasolo from one of his former hometowns, Los Angeles. Right. We're here at the Spotify Studios, recording live. in person, we're live from the Spotify Studios. You and I are live right That's now. Right. Yeah, we're going to be live. Coming to but. you pre-recorded from Los <laughs> Angeles at the Spotify Studios, where Rob and I are going to be interviewing Cody Sanchez. We've had Cody on previously on the Bigger Pockets podcast, episode 614. Uh, since then, Cody's career has really taken off as he teaches other people how to buy businesses and grow businesses, as well as does so herself. Rob, what were some things that investors should keep an eye out for that will really help them on their journey? Honestly, I think the thing that she really hammered in this podcast was the importance of really vetting the people that you're hiring, but specifically the operators or the partners that you're bringing on on any business because you just don't want to get into a bad deal with a bad partner and not be able to escape it. And so she kind of talks about some of the systems and some of the things that she does to cross-reference and vet some of the people that walk into her business so that they can run it successfully and help her grow them. That is actually great advice for people to look out yeah. for. What was your favorite part of today's show? You know, it is always one of those things. Cody is such a powerhouse in this place. She's a pioneer. She made laundromats and car washes in businesses that seemed boring, very sexy. They're very cool uh, because it just shows you that they're, you know, the stability of them, they're recession proof. And I've always really appreciated her ability to articulate that kind of thing. And honestly, she articulates it so well that when it's our turn to talk, it's like, oh, that's right. We must add something that's also sounds good, but it's hard to do that when you're next to Cody. Yeah, this was a great interview. Cody did a great job. She made things very easy. I thought she gave a ton of value both philosophically and practically. Mm -hmm. Like she tells some really good stories. She gives some good examples from her own business. And she actually has a part where she talks about being careful who you get your information from. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of influencers yeah. out there that paint a picture that is not realistic when it comes to actually running businesses, buying businesses and owning rental properties. And we also talked about, you know, the scam of passive income and uh, why that's not really, that shouldn't be the goal for most business owners and real estate investors. Yeah. So make sure you listen all the way to the end because this interview is fire the entire time, pretty much guaranteed to make you money in your career. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the interview, today's quick tip is very similar to what Rob just said. When you're looking for partners, look at what they've done in the past. Don't assume that people are going to do something different in the future than what they did in the past. People tend to be themselves. So if they don't have success or experience doing the thing you need them to do, probably isn't the right partner. All right, let's bring in Cody. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. We need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. 
Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day, plus Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Cody Sanchez, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast. You were featured previously on episode 614, as well as the Bigger Pockets Money podcast 416, where you were talking about boring businesses that will make you rich. Today, we're going to be following up on those boring businesses and talk about which businesses are the best fit for real estate investors and how to make those businesses as passive as possible. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You and Rob have a little bit of a friendship thing mm-hmm, going on, mm-hmm, a little bit mm-hmm. of a... We're buds. I, I was going to say bromance, but you're not a bro. So is there a name for... Yeah, Brosismance. Brosismance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I coined that today. So what does the world not know about Rob that they need to know that you know? Oh, gosh. Mm. Please don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think you're an authentic human in real life. You're the same person, kind of Thank you. off the screen and on. I try my best. I really do. Yeah. You don't have to I'm try gonna... to be authentic. You're making your own thing sound really Uh-oh. bad. Oh, yeah. I yeah. tried to be real. <laughs> no, I think you're the exact same human, which actually is quite rare. 
And really? I, you think yeah, so? you meet a lot of people and you turn it on. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the biggest podcasts I've been on, oh, they're incredible humans. They're they're really nice either way. But it is uh, there's just a switch that that's flips true. for sure. Yeah, yeah. You you walked in same Cody as always, but there is a little bit you know for some of the people that come in sometimes there's a little bit of a focus. You know, they're getting in not not in character, but they're getting in the zone, and then it's like, all right, we're starting, and it's like, yeah. So it does happen for sure. Well, actually, and it's not always that bad, right? Did you guys ever read that book, Winning, by um, Tim, Tim Grover? Grover? Yeah. <laughs> Did I read it? Yeah. I own it. Ah. Oh. There's a running joke that Rob doesn't read books. He just picks the ones with the best no, looking covers to put in the pictures. Of Actually, that makes a lot of sense. You put them on your Airbnb stage. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Year. Yeah. Just going to keep using that joke today as many times. It's, it's working. But it's really good if you actually haven't listened to it. It's a great listen, too. But he talks about how. Kobe got into the black mamba mentality, which was his. And I I kind of I kind of resonate with that. I think if you actually want to be exceptional at something, it's hard to be normal, just like everybody else, have the mm. same personality you have all the time. In fact, you do have to switch a, a flip. Um, you guys know if you're if you're just nice guy rob all the time when you're doing real estate deals and something's going wrong and somebody's defrauding you and you know something bad's happening, it's probably not gonna work. They don't want to they don't want to hear about Chipotle burritos, you know? That's true. And so you have to kind of switch this flip to like, all right, this is this is where I separate from the rest of the pack. Yeah. So maybe not the black mamba, you could be the brown water moccasin <laughs> take that yeah i'll take that um yeah you know when i when i'm at tsa i have to turn it off because i just want to chat with them and then they're like get me out of here and i'm like sorry sir let me get on through so Your kids but are gonna if look you do forward to chat that. with somebody go to trader joe's the cashier is very friendly some of my best my best friends is that you got through some rough times that's how i did man joe's the man <laughs> can't afford a therapist <laughs> You just found a Trader Joe's and you pinned the employee down. Couldn't get away. Poor thing. They don't pay them enough, huh? (laughs) So, Cody, for people who haven't heard the episodes we've already done with you or they don't know about you, perhaps they've been living under a rock, don't have the internet, still use one of those phones, go da-da-da-da-da-da when they're talking. Can you share a little bit about your experience as an investor and a business owner? Sure. Um, Well, I I did the Wall Street thing for a long time. So uh, I was an investor at Vanguard, Goldman Sachs, State Street, a bunch of the big investment firms out there. And then uh, I started investing in companies on the side, little little businesses, because I realized as I was investing alongside these, you know, big, huge funds and um, pensions, th- the deals weren't actually that different, that although we were doing $100 million or a billion dollar deals, it wasn't that different really from me doing a five, ten, a hundred thousand dollar transaction on the Sorry side. Sorry to cut you off. When you say we weren't that different, are you saying the fundamentals of how it's analyzed, a profit and loss statement, an income stream, an org chart, and you're looking at it all? Exactly. It's kind of like not that different between buying a condo and buying a mansion, yeah. right? Or buying a condo and even you could probably say buying a you're signing the same forms, yes. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of rhymes. Yeah. Sign the same paperwork that you don't read, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> our world's not a good idea. Real estate more normal. Um but And so I did that for a number of years. And then finally, I built up enough income where I was making more doing that than I was in my corporate job. So I left and became a partner at a private equity firm. And uh, and there I quickly realized, too, that I didn't like that model. I really just wanted to own my own companies. I wanted to own them forever. I didn't want to have to build them up, strip out some of the financial uh, costs, and then sell them. them. Yeah. And so I was like, what if we just did the Warren Buffett model? We have a hold co. We own these things forever. They cash flow for us. We build our communities. And I started doing that. And then I got bored in COVID during 2020, and I started talking about it on the internet and didn't realize that people thought laundromats, car washes, all that jazz would be all that interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very. So 
you were working at Goldman Sachs doing all this stuff. Did you go to school for this, for for kind of that side of things, like finance? Because I know that in a previous life, you were also like a like a journalist too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was a human trafficking and drug smuggling journalist uh, when I was still in college. I graduated a year early from the illustrious uh, Harvard of the West, really, Arizona State. And, um, and then I basically... You know, I, I cl- started climbing up in finance and I didn't go to school for that. I did a couple majors. It was like business journalism, public relations for undergrad. Oh, just a triple major. Arizona State is <laughs> way more known, known for like keg stands and partying than okay. uh, than grad degrees. So um, so I did that. And then I realized that I, I didn't know enough about finance, even though I was working in it. I, I kind of wanted a grad degree because I thought that's how you actually learned back then. So I ended up going to Georgetown. And got an MBA from Georgetown. And that's when I built up a business in, in Latin America. But, you know, to start, I think a journalist is an incredible background to have for finance because all you do is learn how to ask really good questions. And, you know, you guys know when you go and look at a house in real estate and you do an inspection, you can just follow all the documents. But if you ask the right questions to a seller, you can probably get a better price or better terms when you actually understand what they want. If you ask the right questions during inspection, you can actually make sure you save yourself a bunch of headache. And if you ask the right questions to investors, you can figure out how you could get them to give you their money. And so um, that journalism component sort of weaved its way through through finance. But I was never an expert in Excel. Yeah. So fundamental of business, you know, what questions need to be asked? I think that's how you really start laying. You know, when I'm building out any of the business that I'm doing, all we're doing is just asking questions and writing them down because that's how you sort of find out what you don't actually know. So it's true. Uh, before we get into the content, for people listening who are like, I got into real estate to make income passively. I want to, but I don't want to start a business. What would you say to them? I hate that line. I hate the line passive income. I know that's a, a real estateism. I always say you don't want passive income. You you want a f- empire. You want you don't want just money. You don't want to get rich. You want to be free. And so when people say they want passive income, what they're really saying is I don't want to be tied to a business. I don't want somebody else to own my time. I don't want to have to work and stay away from my family. Um, But there is no such thing as purely passive income. I think it is a complete and utter fallacy. The only way that you can get passive income is by doing upfront active work. And I think we should all be honest about that because how do we do passive deals? We do passive income deals after we've put in 10 years or thousands of hours to understand what a good deal looks like and what a bad deal looks like and actually do the due diligence on closing it. And so when I was younger, I too was like, I would love passive income. That's that's the focus. Um, but one, I think it sells you short, you know, after, you know, I've taken sabbaticals and four week and six week and 12 week vacations. And at the end of it, you can only read so many books on the beach sipping a Mai Tai. So I think we actually want to be in the game. We want to be in the arena. You just don't want to do it with people you don't like doing things you don't want to do, working on stuff that doesn't matter in a place that you don't like. AKA a cubicle. So are you saying like, even like if you invest right now in a syndication that is completely passive, are you saying it's not truly passive because of the years of work that it took to accumulate the money to do so? I think there's two sides to the coin. One, if you're doing it that way, you have to have money to make money, right? So if you're going to invest in a syndicate, how did you get it? They don't give it to you. So for sure, hundreds of hours or thousands of hours to get the cash. But side two is there's a lot of syndicates out there. Which one's a good one? Which one's a bad one? Okay. You know, we're not born with that knowledge. You have to know the difference between the two. And the only way to get that is by doing the upfront work. So I think what people actually want is they want what is a game where if I spend a decent amount of time becoming a subject matter expert on something for the rest of my life, 
I can lean into that and I can have horizontal income, aka money that's not tied to my time like David Osborne talks about, um, but it's not necessarily passive. I have to file a K-1 every year. You know, I have to oversee the portfolio that I have of a bunch of different syndicates. But um, these days I get annoyed, not in this crew because we're actually in the trenches doing the thing, but I get annoyed when people on the internet say, you can do this passively on the beach so let's get all into the time. That. Why do you think that's such a popular perspective on especially real estate, but business in general? Mm. Where does it come from? I mean, if we look at the numbers, sadly, most people in modern society are unhappy, overweight, single, having less sex than they've ever had before, getting married at later ages than they've ever had before, having fewer kids, um, not satisfied with their work. There's sort of this this age of, of malaise, despite the fact that at the same time, we have lower poverty than ever before. Um, we have longer uh, health spans than ever before. And so I think people are reacting to this overall malaise in society. And they're like, I want a way out. And I want a way out today. And so they gravitate to this shiny object over here. And I also think with the internet, people who are really charismatic can rise to the top with information. And in the past, that wasn't the case. Like you didn't go to a teacher just because he was the best speaker. You went to a teacher because they were really good at a subject matter. And these days it's really hard to vet who's real and who's not. That's a thousand percent true. So is what you're saying that because we tend to get our information from the most charismatic person, not the wisest one, we are influenceable and they can say, go for passive income because that's so appealing. I think that's right. You said something else that triggered my thought when I was thinking about passive income, because we I got sold on that dream at some point. Lots of us have been sold on the dream. Then you're in it long enough and you think you're doing something wrong and you realize it just isn't never. Nothing works passively. You work very hard. You build something up. Then you, you don't pay attention to it. It falls apart. Oh, well, hire someone else. Put them in charge. They You're not paying attention to them. It's going to fall apart. That also happens with all the other things you said in your relationship. You can't just work really hard, find a person to marry you, marry him. Like, now I'm done. I don't have to do anything. What happens is you, you end up single again. You end up having less sex. What happens if you get in really good shape and you say, I now have passive fitness. I don't want to go to the gym anymore. <laughs> it falls apart. That's true. You yeah. mentioned all of these things that people are struggling with. And I wonder if the core thread is this belief that we want it to be passive and we're resisting the fact that the rhythm of nature, the way the world works is you may not have to work as hard to stay in shape as you did to get in shape, but you still need to do some kind of work. Maybe. And it's like, yeah, our hatred of that. I want to believe that I can just get money that's free because I already did the work. I can just have a spouse that's head over heels in love with me without continuing to put in the work. All these different areas, if that's not what's causing these problems. I think it's beautifully said. I mean, I go back to the law of physics, right? Which is that everything degrades over time continuously. It's like the second law of thermonuclear. Ther ther yes, yeah, yes. thermodynamics. You learned that in Arizona State when you were doing <laughs> yeah, exactly. cake stands. That's impressive. That. You, you guys read Newton's book too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. I saw it that Rob's you own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was at Rob's Airbnb. I needed to grab something to go to the bathroom and the book was sitting right there. I downloaded yeah. the Blinkist. Well, I think that's why these days what's interesting is some of my favorite thinkers are former, uh, you know, you like Lex Friedman. Right. Yeah. He's a scientist. He's really good at taking the things kind of like you are. I say something and I give sort of a wide frame and you go, is what you're saying this, this narrower frame? And then you frame it even further. And if you can name the thing, it's even better. So then you go, oh, actually, what you're saying is the second law of thermodynamics, which is basically that anything that that's talking about heat in that specific instance, but basically talking about how something is going to immediately cool Over or time is going to fall apart. Yes. Exactly. And how and how the universe sort of trends towards chaos. Um, yes. 
And, and, and it's I th- work to keep it from going that way. Exactly. I mean, it's the same thing of another rule, but um, thinking about the law of the commons, right, which I think yes. is really relevant to, to real estate. If somebody if nobody owns something and everybody owns something and as opposed to somebody, one person owns something, what's the difference between those three variables? Well, when everybody owns something, then actually nobody owns it because there's not individual lines of responsibility and incentive alignment. And because of that, we have things that sound great, like socialism, uh, socialism, public housing, communism. And in actuality, they're not great because individual ownership is really important. No That's, one takes care of the town bicycle. Exactly. Or or these days, think about the scooters, right? If you had that $3,000 scooter and it was yours, it wouldn't be beat up and thrown in the middle of the Correct. street. And so that individual responsibility is really important. And I do think you're right. You work at it a little bit every day. But what I wish people would realize instead is... Instead of just passive income, what if that it is actually possible to be healthy, fit, rich, happy? Those are actually possible. And they really just take consistent goodness, not even consistent greatness. And that's the message we should share, but a lot less sexy than five ways to make passive income in 30 days to replace your nine to five salary, which sounds a lot better. That's true. I think it's important because. The person listening to this is also listening to the charismatic TikToker. They're also listening to the really good looking influencer on Instagram that they like to follow. And they're hearing a different message. They hear me say, you got to work really hard to do the thing. They hear you say, you got to be really smart and really good with your time. But then they hear someone else say, I don't do anything. I just make these videos and I raise money and I give it to someone else and I make a bunch of money. Or they hear somebody else say, you buy real estate, you never have to touch it again. They don't know who to believe. That's why these laws to me are important because if you don't see anything else in the world work this way. Mm. Don't think it's going to work that way here. When you see a pattern through every, all throughout the universe that things tend to skew this direction, that's what you should expect within business and real estate and relationships and everything else. It's so true. You can already see the title now. Passive income is a scam. That's going to be our thumbnail right there. That's your title. That, that's my title. Yeah. So I think uh, it get, it's pretty funny because I'll be in conversations with, like, I was actually talking to Pace one time and like I took out my phone to answer an Airbnb message and he was like, you still do that? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, why? And I was like, well, it keeps me sharp, you know? And I think that actually when you get to the part where it's passive, it's a little harmful to your business acumen, I think, because you kind of forget. I, I hired an assistant, a property manager to kind of help run my properties. And for a bit there, like it was great for like a month whenever I really felt like I off off boarded her and she was like ready and doing it. But then after a month, I was like, shoot, how do I do this again? And so that's why I still get everything in my business because I, whether or not I have to respond, I just like, knowing that I still got it. Your husband, Chris, was just talking to me about jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. There is a very big difference between the instructor that still trains and teaches you Mm -hmm. and the one that just owns the gym, runs it. Like their their jujitsu itself is passive. At one point they were good at it. They haven't done it anymore. They don't want to sweat and they just want to bark at everybody else. Like I think we've all known what the coach is that isn't involved in the sport anymore. And it's a different experience than the one that remembers what it's like to be tired and remember what it's like to be frustrated. Their advice is tailored to what the person's going through. No, it's so true. I mean, my dad has this exceptional quote that I go back to a lot, which is um, at some point in your journey of being an entrepreneur, you know you've made it when you're sitting home alone in the dark in the middle of the night on your sofa, head in hands, wondering what to do next. And I think every entrepreneur has felt that at some point, that moment of we're getting sued. They just they just left, you know. 
I don't know what to do in this business. We don't have enough cash. And I think if people are listening, there are two things that are really valuable here, which is one, going back to the laws of physics, which are hard to break and could show much in the business realm. And two is, you know, you know, when you listen to those charismatic influencers and it sounds too good to be true, you know it. You're letting, and deep in your gut, you can feel it. And then when you hear me say that story about sitting in the dark with your head in your hands, you also feel it. Every entrepreneur feels that. They've like, they're like, yep, I've had that moment. And so the woo-woo part of me that lives in Austin likes to think that you go back to sort of that intuition. Because I, I think there are also two types of people. Most people are deductive thinkers today, which means what happens around me, I react to. And, and I basically look at my situation and I deduce based on the things around me what's happening. And then there are intuitive thinkers, which are like, well, what if we did this? And maybe we could manipulate that. And they're sort of forward-looking and gut-based. And I think most of us are trained to be deductive, X, Y, Z, and to go down a pattern. And what you want to also get back to in a way is, is that gut of yours. And I think that we we give away a lot of our power because we we forget that this actually often knows. Because that's telling you there's no way that could work. But then the lazy part of you is like, but I'd really love to believe that it would. 100%. But doesn't that happen in relationships too? Oh, yeah. I don't think that this person really loves me for me, but they got a lot of money and it'd be really nice to think that they did, right? Like you, it's easy to not listen to your gut, like what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Well, I think we, you know, it gets stamped out of us. I think about, you know, my decade plus in finance and it was all rationality. Mm -hmm. You know, let's look at the spreadsheet. Let's look at the numbers. But, you know, one of the deals that I did um, maybe two years ago that thankfully we pulled out of, I partnered with this guy, super smart guy, uh, went to Stanford, um, was also, was he a former rocket scientist? Some sort of science background. I can't remember what it might have been. He might have been in physics. And um, and I remember we were buying, we we're going to buy a dental company and it was a pretty big deal um, and it, they were out of Chicago. And so I said, here are the numbers, like dig into them, you know, put together the actuals and the projections and then let's go and look at them. And so I looked at his model and he's like, we really should do it. Here's what I see. This is super interesting, really complex model. I was really busy and he was running point on the deal. So I'm like, all right, we'll, we'll go there. We'll look at the due diligence in person. The model's interesting. I didn't dig too deep into the assumptions, like why the model came out X, Y, Z way. We get there and the founder of the company who's trying to sell it to us is sitting across from us and we're digging into the numbers. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I just, I don't actually understand. Like, where are you getting this? Why doesn't this match up with the tax returns, with the P&Ls, whatever? And, uh, and we couldn't get there. And I'm finally like, how much money did you make on your tax return last year? And he's like, well, we lost money last year. I'm like, and the year before, he's like, lost money last year. And I turned to the guy that I did the deal with. I'm like, you can't project your way into a business deal. So all of the complexity that you added to this business is the reason you will fail. Instead of you being super rational, get back to that common sense. Talk to the guy. Okay, you, you lost money last year. You lost money the year before. Why aren't you going to lose money next year? That doesn't make that much sense here. Okay, fuck the model. I don't even need it to see a deal. Mm. And so the best deal makers I know can drop a deal on a napkin, get the other person to explain their complexity inside of a four by four. And if they can't, they they walk. And if they can, you could do the complex. Yeah, that that protects you from the whole, well, we're chasing market share. And when we hit market share, we'll have escape velocity. And look at this huge number that you, oh, you get bedazzled by the thought of what it could possibly be or... Uh, 
there was another example I was thinking of that just within business, like the graphs and the charts and the, they're pulling on heartstrings and they're just tricking your brain into thinking this is going to go good. And you, never mind, wh- how much money are you making? Why aren't more people buying it right now? Why do you think they're going to be buying it later? You won't be fooled, which is also you see in relationships, right? Well, yeah, when I get in a relationship, I'll finally deal with my alcoholism or I'll finally change something about myself that I'm not doing right now. And then it usually doesn't happen, right? So, I mean, this is great life advice, just how to not be fooled by shiny things and people that it's in their best interest to fool you. The person trying to raise capital to get you to invest in their business doesn't want to tell you that it's lost money for the last three years. That that is always our first question. When me and my partner are like underwriting any deal that someone brings us, that someone is selling. They say, hey, I'm selling this. I wish I could be more optimistic, but we're always like, why are they selling this? Of course. There's always a reason. It doesn't mean that it's a bad one, right? That they're losing money. But nine times out of 10, we we work it out and they're like, oh, they're losing money. Yeah. Nobody sells the car they have or very rarely do they sell it when it's running great and there's no problems. And it's when you hear that weird noise, you're like, oh, no. (laughs) They were like, you're like, I'm just going to turn over here. And they're like, no, no, don't do that. And then you're like, clink, clink. And you're like, yes. what was that? But They're when like, you're oh, buying weird. the car, you just, you have the rose colored glasses. Like, oh, they probably just wanted to upgrade or they probably wanted a new family to have that car to raise their kids in. <laughs> like, and then you get fooled, right? Yeah. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Listen up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. 
So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. So, Cody, you had a interview with, it was a money interview, and there was this great moment where you said, the reason why there's so much money to be made in buying small businesses is because there's not just one path. The path is, how creative can you be in your structuring? How creative can you be in structuring with your operator? Let's talk about the specifics of how you structure with that operator. How do you structure a new business so that it's not another nine to five that you are enslaved to and it and you're serving it as opposed to it serving you? Well, um, there's lots of ways to do this. I think the best way to explain is probably case study specific. So when I'm looking at buying a new business, I do step one is always I typically find the operator first. I'm always starting with who's the guy or gal that's going to run this thing for me. Um, and then I'm vetting them like we talked about humans, background checks, references, past work. And after I've found that human, then I'm looking for operator and me fit. So not that's not just like culturally, how are we together? That's like, well, with the money that I have and the resources that I have and the skill sets this guy has and the resource he has, what's a good business for the two of us to do together? And then finally, I'm probably thinking, you know, what business can we buy that this person can operate that fits in that little middle of our Venn diagram? And um, and there's lots of ways to structure it. I think the most important part for you just learning is to realize that if you don't want to run the business, you have to find the human before you find the business. Most people go and try to find the business and hope that the human's in the business or they think that they can go hire the business. And you can do all of those things. It's just hard. We've all hired before. Hiring great people is really hard. Hiring somebody else to run your business and your dream, not theirs, is also really hard. So I start with a human and then I go to the business. Then you can get to structuring. Like, you know, do we vest the equity right away? What are the cliffs? How much money do we pay them? What percentage of revenue or profit? Um, Which you can, again, slice 57 ways from Sunday. And you think a lot of people skip the human element. They just look at the fundamentals and they assume that the human part will just work out. A hundred percent. So that's kind of like planning your wedding, wanting to know what all the details are going to be. And I want to live in this house, in this neighborhood, but you haven't actually found the partner that you can make that happen with. I think that's exactly right. And, And I really think for your first deal, you should probably be really closely involved in the business. Um, you don't have to operate it, but I would be really closely involved in the business. And most people skip that. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask from a time commitment standpoint. Do you expect to give up a ton of time up front versus like when the business is up to speed? Are you coming in on the back end? Like, are you in the trenches with your operator? Are you training your operator? Are you hoping that they're training you? Like, what is that ideal scenario for you? 
There's sort of three levels of of operators, in my opinion. There's uh, a proven and known operator, which means they've already done the thing that they're going to do this time, and you know them. So they're a known commodity. And then there's unproven and unknown uh, operators, which is basically they've never done this specific thing before, and you don't know them personally. And then you have the third, which is like some reverse characteristic of that. Maybe you know them, but they're not proven, vice versa. So if you have a known, proven operator, then typically I get out of their way. I'm like, here's the cash. I like this reporting structure on Friday. I want you to funnel into all of our Excel spreadsheets. I want to have backend access to the website uh, and all the, the tech stack and the bank account so I can track and make sure that the money's flowing as it should be. But otherwise, you run and then you come and tell me what you need. And that's usually a weekly call. Um, or now that I have somebody underneath me who runs our portfolios, that's like a monthly call. And I do a weekly call with a guy who runs all the portfolio companies. Um, so that is your ideal state. And so, you know, you think about it like, if you think about your business, so you know what you guys do right now. There are probably people in your in your realm, in your wheelhouse. Who you're like, God, that guy's just a good. He's so good. Like he's a vendor. I pay him, and he does it every time on time. Exceeds expectations. He's amazing. Well, what I would typically do is I once I find those people, I go to them and I'm like, it's interesting what you're doing now. I think we could scale it even further. Why don't you let me invest in that business? Um, I won't buy out all of it, but I'll buy a big chunk of it. And let's really build this thing together. You'll use my capital and maybe some of my strategy connection network, et cetera, to do it. And so I kind of like doing those deals to start if you can. So this is why you like buying businesses as opposed to just building them from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like it for two reasons. One. I'm not that creative. So I don't have the idea for the next Spotify. Like I just, I don't. Mm -hmm. And so I need the business to exist in the world already mm -hmm. in some way, way, shape or form. And also I like businesses to be profitable. I mean, I run all my businesses at least 40% margin. And so if I'm going to start a business, I'm going to have negative margin for a yeah. long time and I'm going to have to fund it. And that's okay. I just don't like doing that. I do that 10 to 20% of the time, 80% of the time I want it profitable yeah. day one. Well, you've got me thinking when you when a business first starts, just a business, not just yours, there is a vetting process of failure, failure, failure. A lot of them never make it. So if this vendor's doing a good job, in a sense, they've already completed like 90% of the path to having a successful business. They have the right operator in place. They have some idea of how to be profitable. They have good customer service. They have good systems. They don't have great. You, you're avoiding the whole like, I don't know, like so many puppies in a litter aren't going to make it or something like that. You're already getting the one that can handle the gasoline you're going to pour on their fire. Whereas if you took one that was unproven, maybe there's some potential there and you dump all of the NOS that you've got and that thing, it's going to run right into the wall. You don't know where it's going to go. So that makes a ton of sense that you look for the person who's already more successful than 90% of their competition. And you say, you've probably hit a limit, or at least you may have linear growth of some kind. We can get you exponential with the uh, resources you bring. Yeah. That's exactly and reliable, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think reliable people are like the hardest ones to find. So is it sort of like you work with the vendor and if they're a good operator, you're just like, that's the business that you become interested in because you've already found sort of the biggest puzzle piece to, to kind of solve the whole problem there? Yeah. At about any given time, I have five or six people that I sort of have in the back of my mind and I'm thinking about like, oh, I would like to launch a, 
uh, an online business with this guy. He already has this. We could peel it off and do it here. Like, I'm going to talk to this guy because he runs a couple of our properties. He has a property management business. I should probably invest in part of that and own half of that. And so they're sort of cycling through my head. And actually, my husband and I, who runs our, our portfolio, Chris, um, we keep a list now of, of potential operators that we just like, humans who are really good executors. And um, and that's, again, this is like a 4.0 level of the game. In, in the reverse scenario, if you're at the 1.0 level, you want to be on that list. Like you want to listen to all this and think, okay, I don't have the cash to invest. Uh, I don't have the expertise, but I probably got the time. Mm -hmm. So how do I become one of those people that's, that people with a bunch of cash and a bunch of expertise see as worthy as ha of having an equity uh, partner with? And that's what I wish I had done earlier. Um, instead, I just traded my time for money for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes, whenever people want to partner up really in the real estate space, I always call it like, I'll fund it, you run it. Or, you know, you're the brains, I'm the bankroll. And obviously, it doesn't mean that I'm just investing and popping out. But for the most part, yeah, I do want that. Like, I do want someone that can come in, give their time to it, and then I'm there for the strategy side of it. So you sort of talked about having this list of operators. For those of us that are just trying to get one operator for whatever business, how does one go out and actually source an operator? Yeah. It's, I think it's your immediate network. So I call it the COI effect, which is basically you're looking for centers of influence, but you are the center of influence. So if you think about it right now, for instance, I have Laura. Laura's my property manager and she runs the crew that cleans my house in Austin, for instance. She's awesome. So we went out of town for four weeks and we had to have all these projects done on the house. So I was like, I need the 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 fences stained. I need the patio redone. I need you to buy a couple of these plants. I need you to do this. I need you to take my car into X, Y, and Z. And I just kind of said, do all that. Charge me what you will. And it was a micro project. And at the end of the four weeks, she had done all of it. She had done everything that I wanted her to do. And she saved me a grand by not taking it to one dealership and taking it to another one. And so when she did that, um, I basically got with her afterwards and was like, well, you take 50% of what you saved me because uh, you, when you save me money, you're going to make money. Love that. And then I basically said, you're really competent at this. So what if we made you our office manager and our property manager? And so I kind of like scale them up with little little services. And then finally, like I see her being one who could manage, like she could probably manage a couple of my Airbnbs and own a uh, part of that company. And so you could think about it the most micro scale. Like everybody probably has a door guy at your building who's just incredible every single time or the guy, the valet who parks your car every single time and it's amazing. And then if you're a little bit higher level, you probably have that person that works inside your company that you know you won't be able to keep forever in that position. But if you funded them into something else, they would crush it. And so I think it's this secret of talent management and talent retention we used to think about it like, how do I keep people in the company for a long time? And I think the 21st century way to do it is to think about how do I keep people in my ecosystem for a really long time? And if you can do that, then you can have people work for you for 20 years, but they can become owners too right alongside you. Is there an element to your hiring process when you're hiring an employee that they might have the, the chops to be an operator? Or is that like, is it just hard enough to find an employee? So like the operator part of it, not really too important. No, I mean, th yeah, there's two questions I ask for every interview. And I wish, God, if I had done one thing differently when I was younger, it would be to learn more about leadership, culture, and hiring early. Like if we did a video right now and it was how to get your first Airbnb to 10,000, we could go viral with that. If we did an interview that was like, 
uh, how to hire to get your company to 100 million, and we get like 50 views. Because people don't realize the power of humans. Like, that is so much more powerful if you can actually understand how to motivate and find and retain great humans. I think it is the cheat code to money. Um, so if you're listening and you're thinking of not listening for a second, like, I would not. Um, but there's two questions I ask every time I hire. I ask, um, if you came to my company, what other exceptional people um, do you know who you could bring with you? And that will immediately tell you, are they a leader? Would anybody follow them? And do they think about talent? And so I'll know immediately, especially for a management position, if they don't have somebody that they mention, then they're probably not a great leader or manager. Yeah, yeah. And then the second question I ask them every single time is, what's the one thing that you do with your team or with the people that report into you that you wish other bosses did? And typically they won't have an answer to that because it needs to be tactical. It needs to be really specific. And th they might say something like, I do weekly one-on-ones. And then and that's wide enough where people could lie to you about that. Mm -hmm. And so then I usually double tap and I go, that's awesome. Can you show me an example? Pull it up right now on, on uh, Zoom. I'd love to see an example of what your one-on-one -on -one doc looks like that you run people through each week. And they'll be like, oh, well, we just do it <laughs> verbally, you know? And then yeah. you're like, never mind. Okay, next. Um, because I think the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And if you don't document and systematize early, you're never going to be able to well, run a company. Well, it means that they're not being challenged. If they don't need a system and you can just handle it, winging it, it you're not pushing yourself as much as you could. The business is not yeah. challenging you as much. It, when you get overwhelmed, you're like, I need a system. I need a process. I need a way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to weightlifting. If you ask a person like, what do you do when you hit a plateau? How do you get over it? And they're like, oh, you know, I never really hit plateaus. I just kind of like work out until I feel tired and then I stop. You're like, Okay. That's not my workout partner. That's right. not the person I want running it. That's a good point. My my uh, trainer the other day said something really good to me. She's like, um, well, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to focus on fitness. I've never really done it in my life. I've always worked out, been relatively fit, but I've never said, what if I just tried to be the most fit mm -hmm. I possibly could be inside of 120 days? So I'm going through that right now. And, uh, and she said something so obvious, but with such a great line. And it was, um, well, you're definitely not going to lean out by accident. And I think that's the same thing with money, wealth, relationships. You're not going to get rich by accident. You're not going to get fit by accident. Yeah. And so if you don't have systems and processes and you're not what is getting measured gets managed, then you're probably not going to hit your goals. When I was working as a police officer, I was buying out-of-state rental properties. And you don't have a lot of time to analyze a deal the way that your brain is comfortable with. You can't sit there for six hours and really just think about all these what-ifs. You you can't talk to your agent for an hour on the phone at a time whenever. I'd have like a three-minute period where I'm waiting for someone to come relieve me where I have nothing to do. So I had trained my real estate agents, listen, I'm going to send you a text and I need you to play with a thumbs up or a thumbs down emoji. That's all that I want, right? And here's the questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to give you the address and I want you to look up this, this, and this. And then I'm going to do the same with the property manager. And they're going to tell me this, this, and this. And I needed both sides to be in agreement. And then I would move forward signing a contract. And then I would do the due diligence once I got to that point. It got to the, everyone say, how do you buy all these properties while you're doing your stuff as a cop? I'm like, because I have a 12 second period of time where I can pull out my phone, text an address, copy it, send it to the property manager. An hour later, when there's nothing happening, I can look. You're doing the same thing. You're just going on The Onion or Instagram, and you're just scrolling through stuff as opposed to being uh, purposeful with that time. But I created that system because I didn't have the time. Like That's where I realized when you're pushing yourself is where you need structure. It's where you come up with these ideas. When you're comfortable and casual, 
it's not even a thing. And I, I love what you're describing because what you're doing is you're stress testing these people because you can't put them in the position and actually see if they perform. So you're just checking to see, well, have you performed before? Because if you had, you would already understand these types of things. I'm sure your personal trainer, when they say that you can't lean out by accidents, because they've done this with other people. They've tried many times that people have come to them and said, I want to be in shape. And they've seen who it works on and who it doesn't and what their mindset is. Yes. Did you name your framework? Uh, I, you know, that's a good point. I never, I don't know if I, that's where I'm not good at marketing. He would have failed that interview. He would have failed. Sorry, dude. You're not working for Cody. It's spelled out in long distance investing, but no, I didn't come up with a name for it. I think, um, I found recently that naming the processes that you do is really, really helpful. Of course, for marketing, but also just because it's a trigger for your team. So basically almost anything we do at Contrarian Thinking, I try to stop and pause when we have something that we want to do more than, that, that has more than three steps that we do more than three times and that gets documented. Uh, and I learned that from one of my mentors. But then the second stage of that was trying to name as many of those things as possible. So like if we stole from the military from my husband something called the CCE method, which is basically a way to prioritize tasks. So you guys know just think about it in your personal budget. Let's say that you know, you're know you a husband and a wife and um, your husband wants to buy something or your wife wants to buy something. And there's always, there's always a strain, right? Like you can always buy more stuff. You always need more things, but maybe there's not enough money there to do it. Well, in business, it's the same thing. Your team always wants more from you. I need another hire. I need, we need a bigger office building, whatever it is. And so we trained them to say, is it, is it um, considered critical, aka... Um, if we are driving a car and the car uh, has a is, runs out of gas, we're almost out of gas. It's critical. We better fix that. And if we don't, the we can't continue on the road trip, right? Versus all the way at the bottom, um, which is enabling, is basically if we are driving a car and we want to get to a destination, but uh, we would like to get there faster. Sure, we could put a turbocharger on it, but we're still going to get there if we don't have the turbocharger. And so I try to get my employees to use this framework to say, are we talking about critical? Are we talking about enabling? And what's the difference between the two? Um, and I think it's really helpful in relationships too, because it's like, do you, is this a critical to our relationship, to your happiness, to our kid? Um, and so the more you can frame out, I think the better. That's really good. We have a, we have a couple of things we call like pivotal tasks within the David Green team or the one brokerage. Because as you know, when you're running a business, very few problems are something that you make one decision and it's over. It's like this person needs information, but before they can get it, the bookkeeper has to weigh in and the CPAs have to agree and they have to present that to the, the COO. And then that person has to go delegate it to these people. So there's like nine steps before you can get the thing fixed. And that's where they get lost. It's somewhere in those nine steps that someone doesn't push it through. So when we label it a pivotal task, that means the next person can't do their job until you do yours. So this becomes a priority. You need to get them something. And it's probably not going to come back to you for three days when it makes its way up the chain. You can work on the stuff you're doing. But if you wait till the end of the day before you send that off, then that person gets it. And then if they wait till the end of the day, that's how you take like 25 days to get something that could have been done in four hours if people would have. So that framework makes a lot of sense because your employees don't intuitively understand why that's important. And that's a mistake I make a lot. I just like, why would you not think that way? But they need you to tell them how to think that way. Yeah, I've got a similar. So my kids, like when they're starting to get worked up or they're crying, you know, I'm like, is this a little deal or is this a big deal? <laughs> and uh, most of the time, <laughs> they're like, it's a little deal. <laughs> so that's the system that I've baked out uh, with my kids. Just just a little tip for everyone at home. Uh, Cody, the other provocative question you asked in the, in the Money Podcast interview was, how creative can you be in aligning a business that you might already have an unfair advantage with? So with that, 
What are some of the skills that most real estate investors already have that might lend them an advantage? Yeah. Well, one, you guys are typically really good at sales. Like you're, you're hustlers. Most real estate people I've met, they'll make a ton of phone calls. They'll do a ton of door knocking, uh, at least the good ones, I should say. And so um, I think anything that is involving marketing or sales probably pretty interesting for, let's say, real estate investors, because I would assume most real estate investors come originally from being real estate agents. Is that true? No, I think that's probably very rare. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So where do most real estate investors come from? What do you do before you were a real estate investor? Because you had to have money, right, to start. Yeah, probably some form just of like a nine to five, I'd say. Yeah. And a lot of them, I think, bought a house. The house went up and they're like, oh my God, I made all this money on my house. How do I do it again? Yeah. And some of their money came from the equity in that first property. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Or they'll own the house and then they just want to go into their next house. And they make it a rental and, property. And they just make it a rental property. Yeah. So what are the skill sets that you typically think real estate agents, or I'm sorry, real estate investors have? They're highly analytical. Interesting. They have a vision to see how something could be used uh -huh. and they are willing to do a lot of work like making a lot of calls, going at lists. They typically look for inefficiencies in a market and they try to find off-market opportunities. I would also say they have a vision for upside too. Yeah. Do they have to be pretty detail-oriented because you don't have a lot of margin on each deal? You have to be detail-oriented just to enjoy the amount of analysis you have to do to decide if this is going to work or not. Yeah. They're kind of like a bookkeeper more so than a salesperson. Oh, interesting. Well, in that case, I mean, so we do something... I was actually going through this with with another friend of mine the other day because she's trying to figure out what she wants to do next. And you know, you guys know the SWOT framework, which is strengths, weaknesses, mm -hmm. opportunities, threats. Well, we played around with something that was strengths, weaknesses, um, wants, so things that you want to do, and then opportunities. So I guess that's S W W O, or we could say S O W W. Anyway, no, no T. Oh, no T. Okay. Well, okay. Sorry, G edit this out. Sal. So. Okay. Anyway, S-O-W-W. -W. And the idea is if you guys right now are trying to figure out what your unfair advantage is, I think it's so individualized that I would be scared to say for real estate investors in general, you should do this since I'm not one. But what I would do is I would write down your strengths. I would write down your weaknesses. And then I would write down your wants. And then I would write down the opportunities that you see around you. And basically what you're going to try to do is you're going to try to match just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you should do that thing. Like shoulds don't have to mean once. And so what I think I see a lot of times with people that I know as investors is if you're going to put money into a deal, it's hard to make the money back right away. Like you're into the deal for a while. Yeah. You know, it's a one to three to five to 10 year commitment. And so I'm really careful on the deals that I get into. So I would make sure whatever your strengths are, that those marry really well with your wants. Because the difference between a rental property and a business is the business is like a baby. Like you can't leave it alone or it'll die. And so um, typically the first time that you get into a deal, you need to assume that that baby is going to be something you have to, to have to watch over. But answering your questions, I mean, it sounds like they'd be pretty good at an anal analyzing businesses across the board. It sounds like they're probably pretty good at businesses that are mostly numerical. So probably things that are real estate adjacent, laundromats, car washes, yeah. um, property management companies, if they can handle the high number of people you'd have to manage. Um, I would assume also real estate heavy businesses like hotels. Um those types of things are so adjacent that they're very similar. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what are some of the pitfalls that you should look out for when you're thinking about businesses that would leverage some of those skills? 
Um, well, a lot. One is I only buy profitable businesses, so I don't buy businesses that make money. Um, that's me personally. You could do what's called a turnaround, but uh, I like to make sure that my business makes money on day one. Two, um, for a lot of these businesses, you don't want complex. Complexity kills uh, in deals. And so you really are looking for what's a business that I understand. I really think there's only three questions to buying a business if you really simplify it down. And the first question is, how sure am I that I am getting what I think I'm getting? So is it actually making the money that it says it's going to do? You know, do I actually really believe the financials? Like, how good is my due diligence? The second question is, what does the business actually do? And do I fully understand that? Like, if it's a if it's a healthcare business, that might be harder for me to understand. Anything proprietary, maybe not. And the third is, do I actually want to do the things that the business necessitates me to do? So it's like, how real is what? It, how real is this business? What does this business actually do? Do I fully understand it? Do I want to do what it takes to run this business? And if you analyze those three things, then there's no such deal as a bad deal. That doesn't exist. It's just, is it a bad deal for you? And did you get the deal at a bad price? Um, that would be my answer. It's really good. Well, before we before we wrap, this has been just an entire podcast of gold nuggets. Is there a, a particular? Is there like one weird thing that you know now from one of the businesses that you've picked up? Like, did you buy a laundromat and realize that there's like a dumb bunch of different ways to do laundry that you never would have known if you wouldn't have bought it? Oh yeah. Well, I did realize the amount of weird things you find in laundry um, <laughs> when you own one of those. I'm sure you guys are the same with Airbnbs. Um, you know what the biggest thing I learned is just be damn careful who you partner with. Like, I really, really messed yeah. up with humans, not business analysis. Yeah. And I don't think people talk about that. That's enough. been the theme of almost every podcast recording today. Yeah. Is really? People are your problem. Interesting. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you're going to have two of our friends come in here later. And, you know, he got defrauded by a guy for 100K and almost put him out of business. I got defrauded by a guy who I had held his baby. He had come to our house. Like wow. we were best buds. He was super close with Chris for like 200K. Um, and so- And I, I still yeah. think I'm going to get you that. that. <laughs> One of these days. <laughs> One of these days. Yeah. Do like your kids still. No, uh, I mean, it's a really good point. We were, we were up late talking last night about some of my issues. 100% of them came from people, people I trusted that I shouldn't have trusted, people that gave me bad advice, people that it is very, very tricky. We tend to look at business like it's numbers on a page and fundamentals, but they're such an important people component. I was wondering if you've ever bought into a business with somebody, they got some money up front and then they lost motivation to actually run it because now they realize, oh, I got to split the profit with someone else. It's not worth it. And now that business you bought into, the operator that could do the job isn't motivated. Is that a problem that you had had before? No, I've never had that problem because the way you structure the deal up front is really important. And so- You don't give them a big payoff as soon as they get in, basically. No, never. Yeah, you mentioned vesting, right? Yeah, yeah. every single deal I do, you get everybody is vested in it. And that's usually a three to five year vest. And there's usually a cliff, like one year. Um, so if you learn one thing and you're going to go do a deal and you're young and you're listening to this and you're doing it with your first partner, just make sure you guys can both put in a certain amount of capital and get a percent of equity for the capital, the money, the dollars you put in, but sweat equity, you only get over time. And I think that time period should typically be three years and you should get it portioned out. All right. Well, thank you, Cody. This has been fantastic. If people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Cody Sanchez on all the socials, basically, and contrarianthinking.co. Our newsletter, I think, is, I'm slightly biased, but I think is one of the best out there on buying, starting, and building businesses. It's good. I get the daily emails. 
And I read them. I may not read books, but I read daily emails. <laughs> <laughs> Am I on your shelf, though? You, not yet. Okay. When you write your first book, though, yeah. can I write the endorsement or the foreword? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Well, yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> he, he has a bad track record of uh, writing forewords and then missing deadlines. I did, yeah, but for no, nah, I won't. I won't. I'm going to fix myself. <laughs> Cody's worth it, but yeah, Tony Cody's wasn't. The best yeah. predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Oh, Rob. wow. <laughs> How you I guess do we both have failed how you do everything. By, by <laughs> Isn't that the worst line ever? Yeah. It's so true, but painful. All right. Well, thank you, Cody. We appreciate you being here. We're going to let you go. This is David Green for Rob. Only judges a book by its cover. Rob <laughs> Solo, signing off. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.